if you look at baseball at the minute, the trend is to measure as many physical qualities, but we ignore some of the skills, the tactical, and we very much ignore the psychological components. Join the conversation with Tommy Weber. Pro and college baseball coach Tommy Weber brings you cutting-edge interviews and thought-provoking commentary in a weekly podcast dedicated to baseball, sports, current events, and the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and TommyWeberBaseball.com. And make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TommyWeberBaseball. It's time to get the conversation started, so here's your host, Tommy Weber. From the Gotham Podcast Studio in the heart of downtown New York City, my hometown, the greatest city on the planet. It is February 28th, the last day of February. As we look towards the ending of spring training, hopefully soon, uh, Bryce Harper has been signed. I know there's a whole hullabaloo about his $330 million, 13-year deal. We're going to leave that for another day. My guest is too important. I want to spend as much time with him as we possibly can. I want to welcome everybody back to the conversation. My guest... Dr. Fergus Connolly. Dr. Connolly is, in my opinion, the foremost performance coach on the planet. He was the director of elite performance for the University of uh, Michigan football team, director of elite performance for the San Francisco 49ers. He also had stints with the Jacksonville Jaguars, Cleveland Browns, New York Knicks, and many stints throughout the English Premier Soccer League. Uh, Dr. Connolly uh, is the author of two fabulous books that have essentially become the equivalent of a doctor's manual that coaches and mentors should and do refer to all the time. He is um, just a a fabulous guy. We had a conversation last night that could have gone on for hours and hours on end. Uh, The books are Game Changer and 59 Lessons, a book by winners, uh, four winners by winners. Um, I'm going to be promoting the book all day and I'll be promoting the book, you know, into the future because both of those books uh, are must-haves. I want to welcome to the show Dr. Fergus Connolly. Welcome. Tommy, thank you very much for having me. I'm blushing here. <laughs> and as a, and as an Irishman, it's very evident when you blush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. With no, St. Pat, thank you for having me. Oh, you kidding? Thank you for having me. Like, like you said last night, we had a we had a great chat. We should have recorded that as well. We should have. We should. Well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but those are great conversations, and. As you know, the, I, I started our conversation with the genesis of the conversation, the podcast. It really came about after an epic record-setting championship season in Cape Cod. And Jason Kanzler and Neil Barbella and I were sitting around and saying, what happened here? And we said, you know what? It was a season-long conversation. Um, and the reason I brought that up is in reading, uh, first, of course, um, your tweets, and then, of course, the books uh, I almost, I, I must say, it was it was pretty emotional for me to read stuff that resonated so deeply with something that I consider my life's work. I'm, this will be, I'm 33 years, you know, coaching at, at every level, and um, I've taken it extremely seriously, and I consider my, my job to be, you know, I, I sign this sacred pact with guys to make sure that I stand, I always say I stand between what stands between you and where you want to go, and um so much of what you've written uh, resonates so deeply with me. I said, you know, wow, I'd love to have um, Fergus on the uh, on the podcast. And Jason Kanzler uh, acted as the go-between and hooked us up. And, and now we're here. I I want to I want to start off with something that I I see as a theme that runs through almost everything. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. And you can take off with this. Um, I kept seeing. Uh, I kept feeling and even hearing authentic, uh, which to me is a critical aspect of a relationship with a player as a coach. I, I've always believed that I need to be able to be vulnerable and real with my players. Otherwise, a real deep connection can never happen and I can never get them where I need them to go. Can you, am I, am I right with that? And if I am, please expound on it. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a great, great question. Um, you, you can tell I'm pausing here to gather my thoughts. It is such a good question. But I think you're absolutely right. But I think it goes a lot deeper than even just dealing with the player. I think it's uh, very important 
that as coaches, um, but also, you know, simply as people and as mentors, and in some cases, father figures for a lot of kids and even very well-paid kids, you know, even if you're, even if you're going to earn, you know, 330 million over 13 years, you, you need a mentor. <laughs> yeah, you do. And, um, you know, everybody does. And I think authenticity, honesty is critical for sustainable success. I think, you know, a, co- um, a coach, a very well-respected coach mentor of other coaches told me one time that, you know, he said that to have sustainable success, you, you must be authentic and genuine and honest as a person. He said it's very difficult to have sustainable success with a group of people who don't trust you. He said it's very easy to do it for a year or two. Mm-hmm. You can go in and bluff, right. uh, you know, bluff, be a fraud, play to the media, play to the fans. But if you want to build something that continues to dominate, uh, authenticity is key because you can't, you can hide things for a year or two, but right. beyond that, you, you can't. Um, so you absolutely, you, you, you know, you're dead right. You, you have to be authentic. You have to build a genuine relationship, which goes beyond simply X's and O's or the sport itself, um, so that you can develop the person that plays the sport. You know, we, we spoke last night and, and you were talking about how you were surprised at what a warm welcome your books have gotten in the baseball community. Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it took me by surprise because in, you know, in game change, you know, my experience has been in, in team sports, you know, rugby, soccer, mm-hmm. football, American football. And, um, but when it came out, there was, you know, a lot of emails, uh, calls, texts from people in the baseball world, or I would get, you know, uh, you know, you would get very complimentary, humbling messages from someone to say, listen, I was just at a, you know, at a, um, you know, at a, at, a, at a conference or at a talk in Wisconsin and in, in Michigan or somewhere, and, you know, your book was mentioned three times by three different speakers, things like that. And it kind of blew me away because my experience in baseball is very limited. And I hadn't written to baseball, and I, you know, I wouldn't write to something I don't know anything about. But it, it was, it surprised me, it impressed me, because I thought, you know, that, um, you know, you know I, I've obviously learned from, from baseball in terms of the analytics and Bill James early on. And, mm-hmm. um, and I tried to draw, you know, inferences and conclusions from, from the work that he had done. And, uh, and actually when, even before the film came out, I'd heard about the book. So I went and I, you know, read Moneyball. And then mm-hmm. as I do, I went and read everything I could about Bill James, went back to find, you know, the actual formulas, tried to understand, I, I, I have books here on baseball uh, sabermetrics and, and and analytics that I'm pretty sure a lot of baseball people haven't read because I went back to the original source, right. not to understand the formulas, but to understand the why. Why was he looking? What was he looking for? And my intention at the time was to try and use that approach and that mindset for injury prediction, which I found out, you know, years ago was never going to work. You can't predict. An injury. Now you can suggest probabilities, but that's what my focus was, and that's what drew me to baseball. Um, you know, originally to try and learn from that. But then, fast forward, you know, 15 years later, and baseball is going through um, a little bit of a, a minor revolution, I guess, in terms of sports science and performance. D- differentiate for our audience. I think this is a critical thing because we are, as I said, we are awash in this tsunami of data now in baseball. The difference between predictability and probability. Well, predictability implies a certain amount of, um, you know, absolute um, or, you know, a certainty with which you can suggest that something is going to happen. And, you know, I still remember many years ago making the point that in team sport, as good and all as sabermetrics might have been, and I'm not the one to judge in baseball, there is no hope of applying the same principles where you have 11 v. 11 moving on the field with crazy umpires then in the middle. You know, in baseball, there's a little bit more um, structure to it, and there's a a lot more more 
stationary actors in in the equations. Mm-hmm. But probability is really what coaches do on a day-to-day basis. They operate, and, and this is, we touched on this yesterday, and I think this is the, the single most important point about the integration of sports science analytics and coaching. What your coaches that we have, the great coaches in baseball that you have today, have years of uh, memory, repetition, and experience that they draw on on a daily basis. And that's incredibly important. And when people say things like, well, they don't understand sports science or analytics, no, they they have. They've been doing that. It's just been, they've done it in a different form. And it's like the icing on a cake. The art is their interpretation of all of that data that they have gathered as memory. Now, analytics and sports science come along and it just provides a little bit more uh, quantitative, in a different type of information that, that you still need that icing on top. You still need that artistry and experience to help interpret that data. And um, so I don't see it as a conflict. I've described coaching as driving your, your car home, driving your, your truck home. You will get into your truck. And if this is a journey you've driven many times before, you'll get into your truck and you won't even look at your dashboard. You might check and see if you've got gas and that's it. You drive home because you've driven this route so many times. Mm-hmm. And as you're driving straight along the road, you won't look at your speedometer because you know, as you're passing vehicles and trees and buildings, you've got a good gauge of the speed that you're driving at. Well, take coaching. You don't need to measure everything. Coaches, right. the more experience you have, you don't need to measure everything. Now, should you decide to take a different route home, you might look at your gauge, your speedometer a little bit more, and you might check some of these things because it's a different route. You might check your GPS. It's the same with baseball. If you've got a new player, a new opponent, a new situation, you might check the analytics, but you're still going to drive the car looking out through the windscreen and with that experience that you have. Nothing nothing supersedes experience. So what I hear correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's like any other prescription. Um, If your symptoms remain the same, you're not going to increase the dosage. When your symptoms become more acute, you may need more. So that there is, is there, and I, I would say to you, hey doc, I think there is a point in everything of diminishing return. You have to value what it is you're investing in the increased data and what it is you're getting out. And at some point in anything, you do get to a point of diminishing return. Where, where do you strike that balance? Well, that's a great point. And, and it raises another thing that, so if you look at the current climate, and I'm being very general here, you have a lot of young sports scientists who understand the technology, who pull the data together, and then they present it. But really, if that young sports scientist or young coach can draw in at the earliest stage possible an experienced coach and say, you know, before they present it, this is what I'm looking at and this is what the data I'm getting. What do you think? That is where I have got the best benefit from any kind of analytics or sports science because the coaches will provide questions to you and and you'll say, this number appears to be high. I think it means this. And straight away, the experienced coach will go, perhaps, but it also could be this other reason. Right. So, you know, sometimes you will see there are phenomena where some players perform exceptionally well just before they break down because the body, ironically, goes into a heightened state of alertness and then it fatigues completely. Or sometimes, you know, an experienced coach knows that something's going on in the player's life He's not performing particularly right, well. Right. And he might say, let him just keep hitting. Let him just keep swinging. Right. He'll come out of it. He's fine. Because I know because I know the sort of things going on. So that's why I don't see these. If somebody asked me earlier today, we were talking about, you know, stove pipes or silos. And the you need to avoid that scenario happening where you have sports science departments or analytics departments. They're really performance. It's a complete performance department where experience complements 
uh, objective data in a complementary fashion, not in two step, not in two separate silos that come together at the end. Right. They need to stay together, and and it's a cross pollination of experience, you know, analytical experience and and baseball experience. So you you really. Um, the prescription is for sort of like athletic diversity. You, this is real diversity, where it's diversity of thought, it's diversity of theory, it's diversity of opinion coming together to give the athlete and the team the greatest chance of success. Correct. It's a decision support system. It's not a decision-making system. It's a decision support system. It's job, our job as coaches, as backroom staff, is to provide the most relevant and necessary, not as much, but as necessary uh, as possible information to the person who's going to make the decision at a moment in time. That might be the coach, or it might be the player, it might be the general manager. But it's to uh, then to allow them a window to interpret all of that data and then to make a decision. And that's the critical point. I think this is not PlayStation. You cannot make decisions you can suggest uh, again back to probabilities or it's a decision support system this is all the information i have available or we have available what do you think you're going to make the decision what do you what do you think and let them make the call when they're you know facing the picture so you got dr fergus Connolly. it's game changer fabulous book just tremendous 59 lessons you got to get them i'm going to keep promoting the book all for, forever i mean these books are great um and and Dr. Connolly is just so, so inspiring for all of us who do what we do. So if, if I, I'm going to now put you, you're in charge. And, and if you're an organization, you should put <laughs> Fergus Connolly in charge because he's really good at this. Um, and you're going to be my boss, right? I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you give me the profile of the three guys, the kind of the, the psychological and I guess technical profile of three guys that are perfect to work together. What do those guys look and sound like? Well, what I would I would run an organization maybe a little bit differently now, having you know with the experience I have, I wouldn't assign titles such as strength and conditioning, psychology, nutrition. I would assign them the title of performance coach, but with three responsibilities. So their primary responsibility might be strength and conditioning, but they have two other responsibilities. It could be analytics, it could be psychology, it could be nutrition. But for all three. And the second guy's primary responsibility might be, you know, health and wellness or psychological wellness. Second might be strength and conditioning. And the, the reason is you don't want people to assume titles that automatically create silos straight away before you start. Right. So you have a performance department. It also means that everybody has a secondary role in supporting somebody else. And the simplest example of this is where you have a strength and conditioning coach who, if he's supporting the nutrition department or the psychology or the analytics department, he is now very aware of, respectful of, and complimentary of the work that that he's part of in the other areas. And he can support that while he's doing, you know, his primary responsibility, whether it be strength and conditioning or vice versa. The other very, very important reason is that it helps develop the practitioner holistically so they can contribute across areas because very often the psychologist or the psychiatrist, whoever's in charge of mental skills, the, 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 they actually very often are not the best people or not the primary receiver of information. Very often that's in the medical room. We all know this, you know, the, the masseuses, the medical team, they pick up on all of the, the what's going on with players and right. stories because they right. open up and they talk. But if you've got this holistic department, you know, there's far more communication, there's better interaction. And it just means that now you've got a holistic support system for the person who plays the game. You know, I, when we, when the first time we, we corresponded, I said, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm the, <laughs> I, I'm the only guy who knows the, there's an 800 pound gorilla in the room and I'm screaming. Uh, and, and you laugh, and you laugh that, you know, you, you kind of felt the same way. So I, I have, I have a, an example from my own coaching life where, um, I was a part of a staff and baseball tends to be very much silo where you're the pitching coach, you're the hitting coach. Now, if they could, they'd have 20 coaches assigned one to each player and each player would have total autonomy. And I, I net that never sat well with me because 
if I was the manager and I was in charge, I wanted everybody to weigh in on everything because today you may have a great feel for what we should do with a pitcher or with a hitter or whatever. But I, I, my experience in that season was I literally had to, there was a part of me that had to shut down, even though I knew I had really good, you know, stuff to offer. And I, I was never anybody who would step on somebody's toes. So out of a faux sort of silly respect in quotes, if you will, I actually hurt our team because I had something to offer, but wouldn't do it because I was afraid of offending the pitching coach. That's an incredibly important point. And, and the, the other reason for adopting a performance coach or perform, a complete model is very often in those scenarios, um, you know, the, the coach wants to uh, naturally, you know, spend more time with the player, more time. But occasionally, if the player is very, very strong in one area, the best thing to do is to ease off and allow him to develop his other weakness or limiting factor, as I refer to it, you know, um, in another area. And if you've got that holistic department that recognize that we're all in this together, um, you know, good staff will do that. They'll step back. The other thing, when you've got that good staff ethos, when you sit down on a, you know, every four weeks and run through every player that you have, you'll come up with conclusions or, you know, what are the priorities for this player? The next question is, which one of us has the best relationship right. with that player right. and they can go to him? And it might not be you. Right. It, you know what I mean? It might not be. Um, so that, that's a, a very, very important aspect is, you know, building and recognizing that, you know, you just can't take your ball and go home with it. Right. You know, it, it's, right. the, we all own this process and we're all committed to it. Um, and that's where, you know, the humility, uh, the authenticity, and, and you said it earlier, the willingness to be vulnerable. But you can only create that atmosphere in the team when you have that trust and authenticity in, you know, among, you know, all of the coaches. Right. Right. I, 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 you know, that word humility to me is, um, really important. I was fortunate enough, you know, we all of course love our mothers and I think I had the greatest mom of all time because she lived in this state of grace. You know, she was humble. You know, she had this wonderful Mm -hmm. humility to her and, um, that's why she was so wise because I, I really gleaned from her that her humility is what enabled her to receive so much information and process it because she kind of understood, if you will, as we all need to do, our smallness in the world. Like it, the world doesn't revolve around us. And when you start to do that, you can really grow. And um, sometimes, sometimes uh, people, because there's money involved, obviously, you know, guys get paid and, mm-hmm. and, and you all have to make, everybody has to make a living and everybody has to feed their families and, and what have you. Um, guys get very territorial and proprietary about their position. And it in fact conspires against the sense, the, the, the good of the whole, uh, because you're not humble anymore and you're only thinking about yourself and you think that the fate of Western man hangs in the balance. Just expound on that a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, you know, when all is said and done, you know, we're swinging a piece of wood at a small ball. You know, we're not, we're not curing cancer here. And we, we, you know, we need to recognize that we're incredibly fortunate every day to get the opportunity to work. You know, I've been around groups in the military where, and I have, there are phone numbers that I can no longer call. There are Mm -hmm. people who I can, who I, I, don't have the privilege of speaking with anymore because they're just no longer with us and yep. the task and the jobs that they had to do. And, and in many cases, they'll never be recognized for, for what they were doing be, because of their nature. So the, so understanding at the end of it all, you know, what we are doing, we're very lucky to do it. And the other thing is the, you know, the, this industry, the, the role of sport, you know, on the, on the grassroots level, is to teach young men and women skills that will help them in life. 
it's there's a very small percentage are ever going to make it to the to the right. major leagues right. or minor leagues even. Um, so that's where it started from, and and that's really what our task is. And um, and it doesn't get any easier when you go up the ranks either, because as we all know, sometimes it's even more difficult to deal with the huge salaries and that that are being paid. So developing that person um, is always the, the primary aspect because. If you focus on the people, on the person, that's the framework. And I'm talking staff, players, coaches. That is the framework for sustainable success. That's what we're aiming for. We're aiming to build uh, an organization that can dominate the game. And it's very important to focus on the person, even with our best paid players, because we want them to... Um, develop as people so they can contribute to the organization even when they're finished playing right. and can share their expertise and experience back around with grassroots and it becomes a circle of, circle of life, if you will. Right, right, right. You're listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. We'll be right back. This episode of The Conversation with Tommy Weber is brought to you by 4momalz.com. Join the fight against Alzheimer's and support our good friends, Hunter and Braden Bishop, as they bring awareness to a struggle that many families face through their charity, 4mom. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at hashtag 4mom. And for all your mortgage needs, call Northern Security Capital Corp., the New York area's most dedicated mortgage broker. If you're buying or refinancing a home, there's only one place to go. Call Northern Security Capital Corp. today at 718-273-1010. And now, back to the show. Let's backtrack a little bit. Why did you write the first book? What, what's, what was the genesis, the inspiration? Was there a moment when you said, I have to do this? Um... Tell us about that. Um, there were probably a number of motivations, but um, for me personally, on my personal journey, I started out, you know, wanting to understand how do I make, you know, a player or a team better. And it seemed to be strength and conditioning. So I studied everything I could about strength training. And then I realized, well, some of my guys are very strong, but they're slow. So it's speed. So go find the best speed expert. Mm-hmm. Then, I, okay, it's nutrition or it's supplements. And as, I went on this journey of searching out the best people in the world in every single area and every single field, you know, you would end up going to Olympic sports or to vision experts or psychologists. I realized it, what we're doing is playing a piano and it's not about one set of keys or one octave. It's about how you play all of these keys. So to produce a great player, you have to know which keys to press at which time. And First, the first thing is you need to be aware of all of them. So as I'm going through my career, every few months there's a new technology or a new fad. So I wrote Game Changer to pull everything together mm-hmm. and to create a model for the holistic development of you know, an athlete so that we could start, first of all, by understanding, okay, what are all of the pieces that go together? And you know, I, I, it's, I have a, a very simple framework at the core is health you know to for because you want someone to play as long as they can because and the the most important aspect of that is we touched on it at the very beginning if i've got an old player with a lot of experience that is the one thing i cannot give him i used to joke with older players that i would work with you know i can make you fitter faster stronger i can even improve your personality (laughs) but i can make you better looking but i can't give you experience right and that that was the secret if i can get them on the field and that's that the core is health and the other four things then that come together um in an integrated way they're not isolated is your tactical experience is your tactical ability which is your positioning your understanding of the game your actual um you know wealth of experience that you've built up um then you've got your technical ability you know your actual ability to, to throw or to strike uh, running technique, whatever that might be, and then you've got physical capabilities, strength, speed, power, which we can, we have more data in that than anything else, and more, you know, research. And then finally, we have psychology. So it's health is at the core, and then it's TTPP, tactical, technical, physical, psychological. And if we look at the athlete in that manner, 
we can start to profile in a small way which athletes are physically dominant. So, you know, is it a case that, you know, you've got a, a player who is achieving great performances by relying primarily on their physical ability? And, um, and if you look at baseball at the minute, the trend is, um, again, you know, based on just my conversations mm-hmm. with you, but the trend is to measure as many physical qualities, but we ignore some of the skill, the tactical, and we very much ignore the psychological components. Oh, God, yes. We, it, and sorry, in, in the sense that we don't attempt to even subjectively assess them. So in other words, if you only focus on the physical, well, then you're not spotting perhaps the elephant in the room, which could be that, you know, there's a psychological concern uh, maybe he doesn't feel part of the team. Maybe there are issues at home, or there's a skill, a small skill technique um, that we can help develop. That and think of it like a fuse board. If you can spot what the issue is and you flick that fuse, it complements all of all the, the other others areas. It takes this, it yeah. takes pressure and stress off of the rest of the machine. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That that's the key thing. And and in many cases, it could be a psychological thing. It could be a very small concern that the player has about perhaps a loved one, a family member who's mm-hmm. very ill. Right. And it might take a, s- a short conversation. The, the, the general manager becomes aware of it and goes, why didn't you tell me? I, I, I know this brilliant surgeon for, for your family. So I'll take care of it. Then the guy comes into work the next day like a completely new person. He's got a phone call from his brother-in-law who's had this, who has a sixth child and he just comes in, he hugs the general manager and goes, "That is," and he's like a new guy. Thank you for doing that. And that's that one fuse turns on all of the lights again. So, so That's I, all it might take. when I, when I hear you say this and I think about the scenarios I've confronted in my own coaching life, um, which, which I, I, so many, so many instances sort of run in line with everything that you're talking about here. I could, I could think of the specific player and where I was, where I was sitting when these things happened. Um, I, I, I think the physical, let's, I, I can only talk about baseball because that's the game I'm involved in. And I always been involved. The physical is easy because it jumps off the page at you. Okay. My yeah. suspicion is, and I don't, it's not a suspicion. I would, if I were, if I were writing the paper here, um, my, my, I would use, I would really want to delve into uh, the, the, the cause of us ignoring for the most part, the, the psychological components of this. And I think number one is fear. Um, you know, there's a reason why 70% of people who suffer from depression go undiagnosed and untreated because we are still, you know, it's still kind of in a very hyper macho world that we live in. It's, it's a sign of weakness. You know, if you're weak, psychologically, not weak, I'm sorry, but if you have an issue psychologically, you're weak. You know, if you're weak physically, you get in the gym and you engage in a really macho hype, you know, you you get after, they say you get after it. If you say an athlete has a psychological problem, that's something that very few people want to even sort of get next to. And and I, I am a huge mental health advocate. I, I, I believe the next frontier is all going to be about feeling better about you and walking up to home plate feeling like you can't make out. Um, I believe that the athlete, our athlete in baseball has never had lower self-esteem, has never had more skill, has never been bigger, faster, and stronger and more care and yet very low self-esteem. So that's a problem in our game that I don't see in the wake of all the data, anyone saying, Hey, you know what? Let's pivot here. Let's take a more holistic approach and let's see how guys are feeling. Well, I think, I think there are, it's, you're absolutely right. I think, like I said, if you, if you take this tactical, technical, physical, psychological model, we already can measure everything that is useful physically pretty much. Right. And if we can't, we can figure it out right. pretty soon. There's too much data in the physical component in baseball and in every sport. And the other problem is that a lot of it is gym-based or it's, indirectly um it's indirect data it's not field-based data so all of these different things and that's another whole debate but just because you have data in the physical realm doesn't mean that it's darn important that's the other thing it distracts people from all of these other areas um the other thing is that just because you can't measure it 
doesn't mean it's not important. Amen. But you still you still should assess it even subjectively. That gives you a starting point. Um, then on on the physical on the psychological side, there are two things. You're, you're right. Um, fear is a, is a major element. The other area is that we come into sport with uh, an aggressive alpha male approach where we are taught and we assume that I am unbreakable and it's not going to happen to me and I'm going to tough through it. And, I, you know, I had my own experience with this. I burned out badly. I took on too much. I was, in my own work, I was doing so much work working. For me, it was how many hours a day could I do and also take care of, you know, girlfriend, take care of personal life and do all of these things. But everybody has a limit. And we sometimes don't recognize that. The other element in the psych- psychological realm is that it is now a little bit more understood than it was 10 or 15 years ago. We have a lot more information now, yes. neurology, psychology. So we are in a better position to actually address it. It's no longer simply a black box. Right. You know, you could be forgiven 20 years ago for saying, uh, you know, he is a weakness or he is an illness and we're not going to go there. That's no longer the case. There are some brilliant people out there who can work exceptionally well with backroom teams to help develop models, to help understand and profile the player and help develop them. Um, So you're absolutely right. If, you know, if you look at how we look at players from an objective standpoint, I would argue that perhaps 80% of the data that we collect, well, maybe a little bit less, is all physical. But we don't look at the, the psychological side, which could be up to you know 90% of performance. Because here's the thing. Guys don't make it to the, to the minor leagues, to the major leagues, if they can't play the game. So they can play the game. Right. You know that. You know they know baseball. So what's holding them back? And if you're not assessing and profiling the player psychologically. Well, how do you know uh, what it is? And the final point, not to go on, but the final point is in baseball in particular, um, it's still very important in other sports, but in baseball in particular, we bring people into the system at such a young age that they don't have the, um, there are two, there are two key issues I believe that prevent the, the full psychological optimization, if you will, of the player. That is maturity and self-esteem. And maturity, com- maturity years ago was um, not as big a factor because players had life experience yes. before they you know, got huge contracts. Mm-hmm. But now we bring people into the system and the maturity, the life experience, the um, streetwise, the street smarts, Many kids just don't get that because they're in, in the system, so to speak, right. much earlier. Um, and the, the, the other one then is from a self-esteem perspective. And that's also because of, and, and this isn't a criticism of, of baseball, it's just the way it is. But when we bring young kids in or into the system, they self-identify as baseball players. And when they get an injury, um, and maybe they're not in the, not, you know, being a baseball player at 100%, they struggle a little bit because they struggle to understand who they are. So the, the self-esteem, when they're not performing um, at their highest level, that's when self-esteem starts to take a, an immediate hit. So helping develop the person is critical. So they know who they are who play baseball. You're not a baseball player. That's your job. Right. But you're somebody else. So you have to develop the person so that they can be resilient um, and uh, the Manchester United, the famous Manchester United soccer mm-hmm. uh, coach, Alex Ferguson, he used to encourage his players, believe it or not, to get married very, very young. Um, and one of the reasons was it would keep them out of you know, chasing girls right, and whatever, right. but it also gave them a life and an identity outside of the game. And it was a very, you know, it was a very smart move, but that's what he would, he would do with, with younger guys, encourage them to get married young so that they could you know, find out who they were and um, have another purpose outside of just the sport. Yeah, I'm, I, um, I'm always... Sorry, I went on a bit. No, 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 please do. Please do. You're Irish. You're allowed to. 
Um, Talking is not a problem. Not a problem. I, I always felt uneasy around the guy who, I mean, this is obviously a caricature, who, you know, has baseball wallpaper and his car is the shape of a baseball. And, you know, he knows nothing else. Um, that always troubled me. I, I always sort of felt that that person was, you know, there was something about their, their self-esteem um, and their identity that was so wrapped up in something that can't love you back. You know, it is what you do. It's not who you are. You are not a baseball player. You're a human being. Um, I really struggle with those guys. And you see a lot of them on Twitter, you know, when it's winter time, they're pining for the game and, you know, they're counting the days. Well, I mean, there are 365 days in a year. You can only play maybe 180 of those days in a real season. So, you know, what do you, the other 180 days don't exist for you? Talk to that. Talk to that a little bit. That's an, that's an incredibly important, important point because your resilience, you know, you have a, Imagine it, if you will, like a battery. If, you know, mentally you don't recharge, that is a real thing. It allows you, it allows your neurotransmitters um, to recharge, to regenerate. It gives you a mental breakaway from the game. Um, it gives you a freshness. You need that in your game. And this is where good coaches who have developed the trust of the player can tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, just get away from this for a few days or, you know, take a break. And, and, the player will trust them and will go away and, and do that. And all of the great athletes, and, and you know, we touched on this last night as well, but in the, in the modern era, because of social media, you know, people portray themselves perhaps a little bit differently than the reality and that you mm-hmm. know, there's no easy day and they're always working, whatever. Very often they're not. Very often they're off doing something else and recharging. Right. But right. even every great, truly great player took time off. You know, um, you know, they went away and did other things and blew off steam. They went, you know, surfing. They, they, you know, they, they did whatever. They played music. They had other hobbies. Like, you know, the greatest athlete of all time golfed and gambled for, you know, large portions. <laughs> and that's how he blew off steam and still went out and, and uh, you know, and gave the Knicks hell every time he turned up <laughs> at the garden. But I just had to get that in. But, but like, I mean, you need it. You need to switch off and, and it allows you that, that, that creativity. Now, the other thing is you can still do that within the organization. You know, within the organization, you can ensure that there are moments of levity, that they're fun, that you, uh-huh. you know, celebrate birthdays, whatever. You bring families in, you know, you do that. You allow them unwind. It's not that you have to kick guys out of the organization. You just have to know when to switch off the lights and allow them unwind and switch off. Because, you know, in baseball, Lord, there are just so many games. That's, it is so, so important. Um, and there are one or two, um, you know, baseball coaches that, that, that I mentor, and, and we've gone through this. You, your downtime, your recovery period needs to be as rich as your, uh, the intensity of the performance you're going to play because it will catch you out. And what you will see initially is you will see that it takes the player initially in the season, they'll start to produce good performances. But then you'll slowly start to notice the first sign is that it takes them a little bit longer to get going or to get up there. So, you know, to get to that peak in the mm-hmm. game or to get warmed up. And then what you'd start to notice is that they can get up there and they can sustain it. But then the next one is the performance starts to drop off. And at that stage, it's too late. So you, But the period in between games is really, uh, that's, it's more important that the player that you focus on recovery with your players than you do on the, the training side because the game is the greatest and richest stimulus for the player. And the, the fresher he is for the game, the more learning he gets in the game. The game is the learning experience. And great players get better as the season goes on because they're so fresh to draw in all of the experience of the game. Because you can practice every day you want, but you're right. going to get better. The game is the one that matters. So what I hear is then, what it's really important for us to do is something that a machine can't do, which is pay very, very, very careful attention to the behavior, the countenance, the silhouette, the, you know, the posture 
the body language, the, the, the spoken language, the attitude of our players. Yes, and, to, and for coaches to focus on their personal development. Like I have a, you know, I have a syllabus that I, I put together. I started when I was at the 49ers. It was um, just on varying different things. So, for example, random things that had nothing to do with um, actual coaching the game of football. There were things like uh, communication. So, you know, being at Stanford, we had, you know, communication experts. We had um, experts on you know, on sleep, on, on, uh, observation, on, you know, all these other areas that had nothing directly to do with the game, but they helped develop the coaches in terms of developing their skill set and their awareness of the human that they were dealing with, because you can pick up so many different things, you know, like go spend some time with, uh, you know, with an FBI undercover agent and learn about body language from mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. That could be the most fascinating 45 minutes that your coaches get. And they leave the room and they might, listen, the guy might talk for 45 minutes and the coach might leave with two small things. And it might be, look, watch the eyes and look at the feet. Yep. And that will give me enough information in terms of whether they're buying into me or not. Or bring in an advertising executive who can tell you what three key things are to use when you're trying to sell a concept or to right. get a point across to your players. That's invaluable, but it's got nothing to do with baseball. But it's invaluable to the coaching aspect, to the development of our coaches. Well, and it's got everything to do with everything because the game's played by human beings. So if you are an astute uh, observer of human nature, and if you know a lot about how human beings work psychologically, emotionally, mentally, physically, then you are going to be better at being able to get ahead of these um, performance droughts, if you will. You'll you'll be able to anticipate when a player is about to uh, go wrong by virtue of something that you see that isn't measurable by a machine. Correct, and that's where you know the the older coaches. You know, I, you know, I've been at there are older retired players and older coaches with many of the teams that I worked with. And if they saw me coming, they'd cross the street because (laughs) I used to pester those guys to learn from their experience because they've seen so many things. Now, you can bring in experts in these areas to talk. You can go talk to some of these experienced coaches and they can tell you small things that they would look for or notice. You know, notice in how the player walks, look look at their demeanor, um, you know, look at their concentration. Um, small, lots of small little things that you can pick up on, and that, and there is a danger that in our silo, in our own area, we go. So you know, you've got to how much knowledge about the the specifics of your coaching area is too much, when you might be better develop the breadth of your knowledge rather than going a little bit deeper. Again, it, it's back to the synergy of knowledge and the gathering of knowledge that makes you a better coach at what you, at what you do. Some of the best coaches that I've been around, you know, originally did not start in coaching. They were teachers. Some I, of them were, I couldn't agree you know, more. Uh, oh, I love them, this. Some of them were like, like, like tennis coaches. There were, some of them were, they did other, other things and they, they looked at, because the other thing is that what you find is that, just like the players come into the system and only learn one way. Sometimes coaches now are coming into the system and only know one thing and only hear one thing and only, but the guys who come from other areas with other ideas, look at the same problem, but from a different perspective and come up with new, really innovative ways to address them. And the only thing that is holding an organization back from making these changes is the fear of being judged as uh, right. you know as being different? Yep, yep, yep. Very much. Groupthink is alive and well, especially in baseball. Um, I, I wanted to just give you one anecdote. There's a famous 60 Minutes interview with Morley Safer and Miles Davis. Miles Davis, one of the geniuses of the 20th century, one of the great jazz masters of all time. Juilliard mm-hmm. trained, knows knew more about the technical and theoretical side of music than than anybody, aside from being a brilliant genius. And Morley Safer asked him, is it true there's a fable about how you would hire uh, a guy to be in your band without hearing him play? And Miles had that great, you know, that voice. He said, hey, man, I just, all I need to do is see how he handles his axe. And I thought to myself, that is... 
Fergus, I got goosebumps saying it because to me, that is so inside and so hip and so soulful. And what he was saying is, I've seen so much and I've, I've accumulated so much experience. It's not about what I hear. I could, I could see by the way you handle yourself that you're a player. And, and, and I, 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 I feel the same way about, you know, when somebody tells me, you know, you got to watch my kid play. You know, if I see you throw the ball two or three times, I pretty much have an idea whether or not you can be a proficient player. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and I could certainly say if, uh, tell if you're going to be terrible. It's a lot easier to tell if you're terrible. But that that interview, I watch it over and over again. And as I told you last night, studying music as an adult, I really feel informed my coaching maybe more than all my playing and coaching up until the point when I took up the piano because. I, I was humbled. Here I am an, an, as an adult, and I'm terrible at this. And it gave me the one thing I really wanted to touch on tonight. It gave me a sense. I said this to you last night, and I want you to expound on this. What's the role of empathy in the coach-player relationship? Yeah, that, it's a it's a great question. I think that um, empathy is is critical because that um, communicates. Uh, again, it must come from a place of authenticity, but it communicates to the other person that you are aware of the situation that they are in and what they are telling you. It doesn't mean that you understand completely because we very often can't understand, you know, if it's an extreme circumstance, we're not in their shoes, but I'm making an attempt to understand and listen. Um, And I think we have to be careful that that doesn't cross into sympathy, which means that we can sometimes verge on making excuses for the other person. Right, right. And, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you last night, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, uh, on my third book, which is based, you know, having worked with, you know, general managers, head coaches, elite athletes, special force, you notice that many of these, People are high achievers. You know, we we, mm-hmm. we strive to to achieve. But what we sometimes don't clarify for ourselves is the model of life and, and the model of how we deal with other people. So when we understand ourselves, then we understand how we should treat others and how, you know, other people will, when they come to us with an issue or when we see an issue in the other person, that person is focused on themselves at that point in time. And our job is to have empathy, to understand. And the very first thing before we interact is, let me put myself in their shoes as best I can and kind of figure out what would they, what's the best thing that I can do to support them? Not, not, you know, who I am and what I'm going to do, but what does that person kind of, what would be the best, thing that that person would want and can I help provide that to them to help draw them you know draw them forward and support them um, the danger with sympathy is that you give them something and with young uh, you know youths or young kids as are coming through the danger with sympathy is that we solve the problem for them right. we don't help them learn from uh, not a failure, but a setback, because I don't really believe in failures. They're opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I, I, I agree. It's only, it's only, it's only failure if you do it twice. You know, <laughs> cause it, and and the, the failure isn't the failure. The failure is the failure to learn from the first time. Right. Right. You know, that's the only mistake. The only mistake is because you didn't learn from the first time. You didn't take the opportunity to, and again, that goes back to self-awareness and being fresh and able to, to learn from, from those things. But, um, you know, one other just reflection on society as well is many coaches are father figures for, for the you know role models for yep. for for guys and and um, that's it's important to keep that in the back of your mind as well. It certainly is. It certainly is. Fergus Connolly, uh, fifty nine lessons, game changer, fabulous stuff. Get the books. I'm telling you, Fergus, we are definitely going to have you on again because as you know, uh, we could go on for hours. We just this, this is the tip of the iceberg. I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying this, but I want to have a little fun before we let you go. Everybody who comes on, everybody who comes on, please. Are we, are, are we finished? Are we finished already? We're close. We're close. <laughs> <laughs> ah, boy, oh boy. 
Um, <laughs> I love, no, I love, I love the questions. I love the insights because I think, you know, I think there's so much, so much information out there about any sport, but it's the deeper level that helps us. Train yeah. Coaches. I, I got to tell you, I, I, you know, I just, I love the craft so much. I really do. And, you know, Jason and I and, and a couple of other guys, we have this perpetual group chat where we just throw thoughts out. It's like this incredible think tank. And it's so, it's so enriching and fulfilling to just be able to be in like this really safe place where nobody's a bully, nobody has an agenda. And we just throw mm -hmm. stuff out like, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And the stuff feels so inside and so hip. And, and that's what this conversation is. And last night's conversation was the same. I'm just really, really grateful. But, grateful, but I really want to get you to play the game. All right. <laughs> Let's go. All right. It's called quick pitch. I'm going to throw some words out, some thoughts. You're going to give it back to me. Number one, what's your favorite food? Uh, lasagna. There you go. There you go. Irishmen, they like the yeah. Italian food, man. With, with Italian food, yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm an Italian kid from Brooklyn, and you know, the Irish and the <laughs> Italians, the Irish and the Italians hated each other, except they always got married. <laughs> I never understood. <laughs> Constantly. I, I love it. I, I love Italians and Canadians. Oh, great. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> what's the last show you binge watched? The last show I binge watched. Um, I, I rewatched uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, sorry. Um, Boardwalk Empire. Oh, Boardwalk great. Empire. Steve Buscemi. That's a great, great series. Oh, great, great series. Great. Yep. Yep. Produced by Mark Wahlberg as well. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite late night food? Um, I am partial to uh, Hershey's chocolate just before I go to bed. Oof. Knocks me out. Mm, nice. Okay. So now you have three guests at dinner, no longer living, not related to you. Who are they? Um... Nikola Tesla, oh, wow. um, Leonardo da Vinci, oh, and um, an Irish guy called Michael Collins, who was an Irish uh, freedom fighter. Yeah, or, freedom fighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, those would be those would be the guys. Nothing to do with sport. Uh, yeah, nothing to do with sport. Uh, but da Vinci would be fascinating. Yeah, imagine. Uh, yeah, just just as a polymath. Oh. Just an interest in everything. And oh back to what we were speaking about earlier, I, I, I use him as an example all the time when I'm speaking to coaches. You know, he went, you know, he paid grave, grave diggers to dig up cadavers and right. corpses to study the science. Right. And then produces the, something like the Mona Lisa, which right. is art. So right. we have to know the science, but to produce the art. Right. We could actually, I, that is the most fascinating period of history for me, the Renaissance. I, I had a friend of mine, a mentor who was a brilliant, he was a Latinist PhD guy who was also a baseball coach of mine that mentored me my whole life, who, um, you know, enlightened me as a kid, you know, freshman in college to the Renaissance. And I have studied it ever since. I think it's a fascinating period of time uh, with so much, you know, pr wonderful, wonderful artistic expression in such a short period of time. Uh, the, the whole dynamic of that to me is fascinating. We can we can do an entire show on just that. Um, we yes, we absolutely are, yeah. We are, however, going to be out of time. You are definitely coming back, my man. You are uh, you are a good friend. No, I tried to, it's, it's the questions, the questions, not the answers. <laughs> it's not <laughs> the answers. It's the questions. It, um, I'll leave you with this last point. The purpose of sports science and analytics are not to provide answers. They're to allow you ask better questions and it always comes down to the questions well i must say coming from you that's the greatest compliment and i really do appreciate that um i will uh take us out with our our guy freddie mercury is going to take us out as usual it is fergus Connolly, dr Connolly, game changer 59 lessons want to thank him very very much for being on the podcast mom and dad love you
Thanks for listening to the conversation with Tommy Weber. Have any thoughts on today's episode? Ideas for a new one? Join the conversation on Twitter at Tommy Weber B-Ball or Instagram at Tommy Weber Baseball and share your thoughts. Tommy's back next week with a new episode of The Conversation. Subscribe and listen for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Stitcher. And of course, always at TommyWeberBaseball.com. Um...